My name is Jamie Piles. I joined Samaritan in December of 1996. We were homeschooling our kids and we were already thinking outside the world's box, if you will. And I saw a little tiny classified ad about this new kind of idea I'd never heard of before. My first reaction was, that's the kind of thing that we would do, isn't it? And so I finally called the number, talked to them, and the more I asked them questions, the more I liked their answers. Hey y'all, we got, we got a great show yes, coming at you. We're gonna talk about retirement, Oh, <laughs> going on vacation. Yes, life work uh, balance. Life work balance. Yes. You know all that, all that good Stay stuff with our friend working. David Bonson. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cost Politics on the Fight Lab Feast Network. Pastor Toby talking on some of the water boy. It's, it's gonna, gonna be, be a great you. show. <laughs> Samaritan Ministries connects Christians across the nation who care for one another spiritually and financially when a medical need arises. You choose your health care providers, and it may be more affordable than what you're paying now. When the body of Christ comes together to pray, encourage, and provide for one another, burdens are lifted and God is glorified. This applies to all areas of life, including health care. Check out Samaritan Ministries, and if it's the right fit for you and your family, you can even join today. Let them know you heard it here on Cross Politics. That's right. So go to SamaritanMinistries.org slash Cross Politic Podcast. That's what it says. Huh? That's new. Mm. All right. Um, hey, we're grateful to have back with us our our favorite punk rock economist. That's right. Mm. David Bonson. There's more than one? Yeah. He still lives in New York, though. Uh, uh, <laughs> hey, no, he, he is, he's that punk rock. That's true. He's That's that true. punk rock. David Bonson. You know what I can tell? I can tell Gabe hasn't read the book yet because... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right, because he talks about I that. talk about you in the book. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I haven't gotten that far. I have I have read it. I just haven't gotten that far then. That's yeah, funny. No, it's at the very end, in fairness. It's in the conclusion. Yeah, so that was that was that was that's, a test. See if you finish the book. That's great. Yeah. Founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. You can hear his financial insights weekly on his podcast, Capital Record, and at the Dividend Cafe. His brand new book, Full Time. It comes out today? Is that really yes, true? Yes, right. Yeah, today, today, today? Today's the day, as in Tuesday. Oh, man. That's right. That's yeah. awesome. David, thanks for coming back on Cross Politic. I love being on with you guys. I loved being with you in person in Moscow a few months back, yeah. and I'm very, very happy to be with you now. And I'm very happy to explain to Gabe what I meant about this uh, New York thing in the book. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at. It. I'm trying to look for it right now. <laughs> can, can I read? Can I read something to you real quick? Yes, please. Let's probably, start here. You're probably better. Let's start here. I, I came down to a coffee shop right near the East River on First Avenue in New York City to write this conclusion. I've written this book in several different spots over a five-month period, but I find particular inspiration in New York City, not only because of what it has meant my life and career, but because of the energy, drive, and aspiration that have always been the pulse of this city. I'm a Southern California guy, blah, 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 moving on. Um, and here's what I want to get to. Uh, any Christian adult who lives in or visits New York City is probably asked by other Christians around the country, how do you stand it there? <laughs> People are rarely subtle in expressing either their disapproval or confusion that a suburban Christian guy like me could not only spend so much time in New York, but move my family here, and most shocking of all, really love it. Mm. I used to think the motivator of this suburban or rural Christian aversion to New York City was ignorance or fear. The misperception of a mostly unsaved, left-leaning city, you mm. know, like every single city in the country. <laughs> they see reports on right-wing TV about crime or traffic and adopt a non-specific negative view. It's pretty harmless and extremely common. 
But that is not what I now believe drives most Christian hostility to a place like New York City. As I've dug deeper into this subject and analyzed both my love for this city and the antipathy others have towards it, I'm convinced that a central driver in the animosity evangelicals in particular feel towards New York City is... It's aforementioned energy, drive, and aspiration. Indeed, the city's pulse is repugnant to many Christians. Their knee-jerk aversion to the ambition, work, and ethos of a place like Manhattan has, in a lot of ways, been the subject of this book. Uh, I, I don't see my name in there, though. <laughs> no, I, didn't I didn't have to. He <laughs> <laughs> was talking about you. I, I, here I thought you were going to say it was the Yankees. Oh, yeah. Damn Yankees. <laughs> Yeah. Read, read the part where you read the part where you talk about me. Read that part. Oh, you're 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 covered. That's chapter seven. We'll get to, we'll get to it. Uh, that's funny. That's exactly yeah. David, that's, that's right. as someone um, who has been, I mean, really seriously, so uh, Knox is a retirement disaster. That's chapter. Well, seven. I made that up. That's I made seven. that up. Uh, as as someone who has been seriously so so financially successful why is writing a book on full-time work so important to you and not buying a yacht yeah it is it is certainly not for the royalties i assure you of (laughs) of that right you you don't Um, need this uh, very similarly to the crisis of responsibility my first book and to no free lunch the 250 economic truths book that came out uh which, which was my last book um i only have any desire or time to write about topics if I care deeply about the message and believe that somehow marginally um, I can say something that I might have some credibility or ability to exert an influence in. So this is entirely missional. And I don't say this for virtue signaling or anything like that, but this message in particular, I care about so much more than almost anything And I particularly care about it for the Christian audience that is largely the target of this book. And I believe that there is cultural leverage in us sort of reframing our understanding of this issue. There's all sorts of theological issues that can move the needle, but I think there's other people that can express those messages better than I can, have more expertise, more passion. On this particular topic, I doubt there are a lot of people that have more passion than I do for it. But then even on the kind of credibility side, I would like to think that I am able to use some biographical and anecdotal context to add to the delivery of the message. David, you know, I grew up in a good Christian family. My dad was a blue collar pipe fitter and uh, managed uh, fabs at like Intel and text instruments and stuff. And so I kind of grew up just knowing that I need to work hard. Um, But what what kind of happened in I have to believe that there's like a personal, you know, revelation that happened in your life around this issue. Cause I never really thought about like the theological implications, uh, honestly, um, until, I mean, I think here and there I have, but really till this last year when we had our live show with you at, at, at the new art here in town, um, you know, what was going on in your life where you, where you thought about like hard work and it's biblical implications for our current context. 
Well, so now I'm, I was sort of teasing you before about the New York thing and the conclusion, but now I realize you haven't read the introduction or chapter I, one either. No, I'm teeing you up. This is how oh, I, okay. I have, oh, okay. I David, have can I done answer, that. Can I because you I did have. read it, and so you're you're just teeing me up to come yeah, in and that's what it was. That's what right down the middle does. of the Yeah, see, I misread you. You're right. You just put that right down the strike zone, and now I get to swing the bat. Yeah, uh, look, by... Um, there's two things I would say. The the first is more early and formative in, in my adult life, and it was the death of my father. It was um, starting off my adult life right at the time where um, I lost him. And it fundamentally changed not just all the obvious things, the personal trauma mm-hmm. of the event. Because he, a lot of people listening that are familiar with him, and I think you guys are, you know, he he was a magnificent person and thinker, writer, speaker. He was an incredible man of God. Mm-hmm. But um, he also was my best friend. I mean, mm-hmm. we were inseparably close. And, and th- so that was an event that affected me in every way you could imagine mm-hmm. to lose someone like him who meant what he meant to me at that stage of life, just getting ready to start my 20s yeah. and he he was uh not a, a financially um secure person in terms of you know ha- he, there was not money to leave for us to go start adult life with right. my my mom was already gone i was just alone in the world wow. and so that was the biographical context to where i now say to people when some folks say like, look, I'm a little concerned about, you know, so-and-so, it really seems like they're turning to their work as some sort of therapeutic solution to these things they're going through in their life. And I just sit there and go, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. would you, would you rather they do drugs? <laughs> would, would you, ra- I mean, the notion that God gave us work for cathartic purposes, that God gave us work and it could be used as um, a benefit, a healthy diversion to various challenges in life. I don't know why that is lost on people, but but by God's grace, it wasn't lost on me. And so that was sort of the tee up in the early formative years. Now you fast forward 30 years later, and um, I've worked very hard. I, I am, by God's grace, I've been um, successful financially and professionally and all those good things. I'm blessed with an amazing family. There's a lot of wonderful things that happen. There's difficulties that have come up along the way, but that's life, right? Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. I don't think there's anything in my adult life that people have criticized me more for than working too much. And I don't know that I've ever heard it from anyone but a Christian, mm. but a believer. And it, and I want to be clear on what I'm saying. I have not had people come and say, dude, you're ignoring your family. Mm-hmm. People, people don't accuse me of that because I haven't really ignored my family. I mean, there's obviously times in which I could have been better here, better there. And I'm really trying to commit their names to memory, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> but, but no, for, for, for the most part, like people are not trying to pull that card, you know, yeah. hey, you keep missing church because of work or something yeah. like that. It's not that. It's just this general disdain for people who seem to actually care about excellence in the marketplace, about establishing um, a position of influence, delivering goods and services at a magnificent way 
doing so profitably and and having the, the a grandeur and an ambition and an aspiration behind it all I, I I think it's a very odd thing for us to focus our moral ire on. And so I want to push back on that, but do so not personally, but theologically. You they, made you made a comment in the book. Did everyone hear that? Oh, yeah, everyone hear that? Yeah, yeah. Everyone hear that? Yeah. Okay. I was gonna, you I was got you got it in front of you there? Just making sure. <laughs> yeah. You just flipped it I, open. No, I was, no, no, no. Um, I was just gonna do that. Well, you just gonna do that. Um uh, where you were talking about uh, you know, and, and I think this is true, a lot of people look at work you know, very materially, the church, the pastors, you know, they talk about it like it's a very material thing. But but you um, said that there's um, an immense amount of immaterial benefit uh, to work. And so there's this weird kind of like, I think the church is, has a big problem with Gnosticism, but when it comes to work, it doesn't seem like they're really Gnostic. In fact, they, they don't see any spiritual benefit from uh, work. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think the Gnosticism that the church inadvertently falls into is in their temptation to view, a, it's more of a dualistic variety where they are perfectly fine to view pastoral ministry mm -hmm. and missionary work and various forms, uh, even applying kind of the quote-unquote nonprofit sector. Like, like as if the tax status of the entity yeah. pr provides additional validation to to the work. That's right. And and I do think it comes from their inability to properly understand what's important to God and the Gnostic error that the notion of there being some sort of inferiority to the material world is a decidedly non-incarnational message. Mm. Hey, David, you know. Um... Part of um, what I was thinking about in the book, because I don't, I can't, I'm only at chapter six, so I haven't gotten to the chapter where you start talking about me in chapter seven yet, so forgive me. <laughs> in retirement, uh, <laughs> retirement chapter. <laughs> but, you know, part of uh, what I was wondering is, are you seeing a difference between how pagans are working versus how Christians are working? And is that Protestant work ethic still strong in Christians and it's just the, we're, we're just losing it within the culture itself? Or is there a difference between the two of us? Yeah, actually, I do have a section in, I want to, I think it's in chapter 10, um, where I go through different categories because it isn't so binary. Unfortunately, like it would be easy. So many Christians love doing this. Yeah. Christians suck, and the only people doing this right are the world. But <laughs> yeah. really, really, the book is basically pointing out a significant error in the world on this, too. But it's not all the world. There is a component of the unsaved world on the other side of the antithesis that are the highest performers in our professional marketplace. And then there is a growing embrace in the secular world, in the unsaved world, of um, laziness, of removal from the workforce, of um, reliance on the welfare state, of all sorts of things that are the understandable targets. So it isn't binary. However, within the church, it isn't either. Um, the notion that there is a, a certain kind of Puritan heritage that's holding strong, and all of us in some form of a, a Reformed church that still appreciates the reformational message of work, we're doing well, but those gosh darn pietists from the broader evangelical world, they're messing up. 
I don't really believe it's that simple either. It's just there's it's tough to come into categories mm. because I think a lot of what I'm targeting applies to parts of the Reformed Church, to parts of the broader evangelical church, and yes, to par a significant part of, of secular unsafe culture. So then does what that means is that we're sharing some sort of worldview together. There's a thread that's connecting all of us together if we can all seem to make the same mistakes, right? Well, there, uh, let's start with the good side. I think that there are high performers and producers that are working as if they're Christians in some sense in the unsaved world. And I believe this is textbook common grace. Yeah. Mm. So then uh, that theologically out of the creation that um, we should have no easier time than those of us who self-consciously ascribed to creational theology um, that uh, uh, understanding the implications of the cultural mandate. So then this is, that, a, I'm sorry, go ahead, David. No, I, I this should be table stakes for us, but it often isn't. And so, but I think your question was more on the, on the negative side of what are the errors that, that we may get in common. And unfortunately, I think most often, um, Knox, I think that you have the church's error largely driven by some form of, of dualism and uh, a pietism, a cultural retreatism. And then I think within the world, it, it doesn't so much come from that as it, it does an apathy or a nihilism. Mm. I wonder too, if it's just, you know, maybe one of the, it seems like Christians though, sometimes buy into that too. I mean, they, they, they think yeah. maybe in the name of a, you know, I don't want to be a health and wealth guy. Um, th they can kind of sort of just say the purposes of God, the ways of God are inscrutable. And who who's to say who, who's going to make it in this world or who's going to succeed rather than trusting um, the, the concrete promises of God and the ordinary way that he works in this world. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of what I learned in studying for this book um, is the how how much dispensate how much damage dispensationalism did mm. in, in the sense of um there became a really robust well-funded i should add faith and work movement in 20th century american evangelicalism and it was almost entirely driven around the notion that the only burden of believers is to save souls and that the world is a lost cause and so it adopted a form of work that said, yes, let's be more faithful at work, but it was explicitly um, down on the notion of inerrant value of work. It was entirely utilitarian. Yeah. Uh, let's go work so we can save souls and and fund missions mm -hmm. and and do some of these other things. And 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 you don't have to say it was subliminal or subconscious. Their very language said, we will obtain the money necessary to go do stuff that really matters right. because this work stuff doesn't, but the work can be the means to the end of actually doing the kingdom stuff. So my view is that the kingdom stuff is right. the work, that the work is a, a necessary component of what we mean by kingdom. And their view is, no, you do the work to get to the kingdom stuff, which in their case was largely soul saving. Mm. So whether it's it's the dispensational 
error or not, or just the, the broader assent to pietism and fundamentalism that was largely the Christian church's response to modernism. Yeah. We just we just had a really bad century. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. We're, we're on a mission to make magazines great again, so subscribe to our Fight, Laugh, Feast magazine. This is a quarterly mini-book-like experience packed full of a variety of authors, including David Bonson from time to time, theologically yeah. Yeah. driven cultural commentary, a psalm of the quarter, Recipes for feasting, laughter sprinkled throughout the glossy pages, and more. Sign your church up. Sign your grumpy uncle up. And while you're at it, sign up. What does it say? The Pope? Elon Musk? <laughs> yes, go, I agree. Go, go to fightlaughfeast.com right now and sign up to make sure that you don't miss an issue. Okay, I want to get through all the rest of these questions because I'm really intrigued to know. I want to get practical. Yeah, but, and, but, but I, this, want, I want to circle back a little bit around okay. one of your demographic question, um, uh, David. You you kind of one of your chapters was on kind of assessing the worker participation rate. Yeah, um, and going actually through different demographics of what the worker participation rate looks like. So now so you know he only made it to chapter two, David. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, at, least, at least chapter two. We're gonna keep going and see it. We'll keep going. We're going. So far, I've quoted the introduction in yeah. chapter two. Yeah. And I'm done. Next okay. time, David. Next time, sign your note to Gabe in like, in like chapter, chapter five eight or nine or something. <laughs> which, which, by the way, is very different than apparently most people read the Bible because God knows they don't start in Genesis one very much. Oh. Ooh. I got that right. Um, uh, but it seems like we kind of bash the next generation coming up. Like they aren't workers. They don't want to work. You yeah. know, they want, um, you know, computer jobs or they want to work their own hours or they want to work home jobs. What You know, whatever. Um, is, is that narrative true? Is the next generation going to be worse off in terms of desire to work and effort than kind of maybe some of the current issues our generation is maybe dealing with? I don't, I don't know the answer to that because there's a lot of ways in which just anecdotally I observe more promise for Gen Z than I felt for, for Gen Y. Um, and I don't want to do the, you know, paint with a broad brush thing, but all generational theory stuff is broad brush by definition. Yeah. We're dealing with generalizations and, and yet, you know, they're generalizations for a reason. I think that the work ethic and expectations of the boomers and Gen X are categorically different than um, what took place with the millennial generation. And, and then now with Gen Z, which is a lot younger, there are certain habits of Gen Y that I think Gen Z has picked up, but there are certain um, changes that may very well prove to be constructive. One thing I'm certain of, Gabe, is that the top 20% of Gen Z is going to be the most productive, innovative, creative, successful in history. Mm. Um, the problem is if the middle 30 don't jump along and the bottom 50 don't really, uh, you know, get going, yeah. then what that's going to mean to social inequality in yeah. our country uh -huh. is in, is incomprehensible mm. because there's, you're not going to get the top 20% to slow down. They're not going to do it. Yeah. They're too driven by the purpose of innovation, of invention, of progress, of they're just really high performers and the meritocratic nature of the society is not fully torn down. So those 20 are off and running. But then in the meantime, there's a big group trying to tear down the meritocratic. And if if that isn't going to be dealt with, then I fear for how Gen Z could bifurcate. David, um, hmm. we did a, Whoa. We, we did a uh, 
you don't want to follow up on that? No, I'll, no, I'll, I'll that, turn, that I'll, was – go ahead. That's, I was going to go somewhere else. Um, we did a conference um, a couple weeks ago in Louisiana. And, Cajun Nation. And, um, and had a pastor there um, ask us a question on – um, helping, uh, he, said, he said, I think he said the median income in their county like was like $17,000. And, and he's like, you know, and, and the, the theme of the conference is sort of like, you know, tactics on, um, building Christian community, but, but thinking of that in a, in, in, in sort of kingdom categories like you and I would like, like we would. And so he's asking, you know, some, some economic questions. Like, what do you say to somebody who's making $17,000 a year, um, on welfare, on welfare, food stamps, just sort of trying to make it, just trying to make it. Um, I mean, so you're talking, you know, somebody maybe who's in that boat, you know, sees you in your office and you're working. You written a book called Full Time. I mean, are you saying to that person, um, you know, clearly you're just being lazy? Um, are you? Um, I mean, I mean, what do you say to somebody or maybe to a community that is largely in that boat? Yeah, it's. I believe it's going to end up being the most commonly asked question. Um, I'll share with you guys something that I consider to be really good news. I wasn't sure what to expect. I wrote an article on this subject about the message of faith and work and full-time um, applied to $17,000-year earners, applied to blue-collar, applied yeah. to people that don't have um, the kind of social strata or socioeconomic strata of a white collar corner office type job like I have. And I submitted it to Christianity Today on purpose and they are publishing it Wednesday of this week. Look, God. Yeah. And, and I was really blessed by that. And then the reason why is I think that message is very important. And yep. I think the, the thing I have to say in that message is really important. First of all, Toby, it's by definition a macro and a micro question. You cannot answer that question without macro. How do you get a community to earn more than $17,000 median? You have to have freer markets. You have to have more aspiration for economic growth. You have to have capital investment. I said this when I was with you guys in Moscow. Yeah. You're not going to change the world without financial markets. All mm. this disdain for Wall Street. You want private equity money in a town in Louisiana that has $17,000 a year median income. You want venture capital. So there has to be a macro adjustment in terms of all of the things that we already know from the playbook, build wealth, build opportunity, build um, you know prosperity over time. But then within the present arrangement that hasn't yet benefited from a, a macro realignment, what do you say on the micro to a couple of the young people that are dealing with that, yeah. that are, are struggling through it? And the, and the answer has to be faithfulness. I believe that a person making $17,000 a year in tough situation and not seeing great opportunity has to do their hardest work possible, even in what seems like a very empty job. And in some cases, it might behoove some people to move out of those neighborhoods and move to a place that will open up more doors for them and their either current or future family. And I'm sorry that relocation is often part of the recipe here, but that is a distinctly American idea. Dynamism, mobility, mm. often required a lot of relocation to find where opportunity is. But then within a, a certain pocket, doing the work they can do most faithfully and understanding the scriptural concept of the journey 
versus the destination. Yeah. That what they're doing right now that may be blue collar or menial or janitorial or something like that that doesn't have socioeconomic strata could be a springboard to a future opportunity. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is I did not get hired on Wall Street the week after my dad died. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to sell his Toyota Celica so we could buy groceries. Mm. I worked at a sandwich shop yeah. and I did not make $17,000, by the way. <laughs> yeah. um, so the uh, there, there, that, that, there's so many greater rags to riches stories than mine. I, I don't care. I don't want to, to tout my, my own journey, but I'm saying I don't speak about this naively. Yeah that someone could be in that situation in life and one day not be, I believe that we can change stations in a market mm -hmm. economy. Mm -hmm. And I believe it because I've done it, yeah. mm -hmm. but I've also observed thousands of others who have done it. Mm -hmm. So the micro and the macro, I can't talk to that situation without being allowed to talk about the necessity of a market economy. That's and I can't talk to the micro without saying you may have to do a job you don't like with gratitude for a period of time. That's good. Now, are we going to go back? Full-time work to with David Bonson. Okay. Work and the meaning of life. David, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for the sign cover. I got the audio book. I pre-ordered the book. And David, if you have some time, we're going to try and go backstage with you. Talk a little more. I got, I got, I got a question about he, he, the other side of that coin. Okay, what do you we'll, do, we'll do when you're rich and how do you raise your kids well uh, on that side of the oh, coin? Oh, yeah. Like, how, right. how do you not spoil it? Yeah. If you're single, get married. If you're married, have you some kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them. Until tomorrow, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politic. You can ask your questions backstage. You sit in church week after week, embracing the truth of God's word. You believe the gospel and claim Jesus Christ as your Lord. Yet you continue to struggle with pornography. You feel like a hypocrite, returning to the sin you hate that mocks the God you love. You desperately wonder, is lasting freedom even possible? Yes, you can overcome pornography, but not alone. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Only by repeatedly running from sin to Christ with other believers can you hope to enjoy lasting freedom. You can live with purity and integrity. Take courage, seek accountability, and do whatever is necessary. Get equipped at accountabletoyou.com.